If you want a great conversation with a Philadelphia sports figure you should know more about, listen to one-on-one with Matt Leon on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Guys, did you see Mike Donardo's Twitter yesterday? Now, he's our education ace, but he posted some video that was really making me hungry. Ladies and gentlemen, Milt Thompson, along with Mickey Morandini, everybody. Here they come with the grub. Yes, that was what it sounded like down at Citizens Bank Park yesterday when the Phillies unveiled some of the new items in their food and concessions lineup for the upcoming season. And those guys were walking through the crowd down there carrying the signature white and purple boxes for Manco and Manco Pizza, the Ocean City Institution on the boardwalk that's going to be available now down to the yard this year. Go figure that this that, that this man who covers so many things in education, now he gets to be around food all afternoon. Food and baseball, two of my favorite things, and he gets to do that on a Monday afternoon. You know the only reason I go to baseball games is for the food, so this definitely excites me. Some other new stuff at the ball yard that the Phillies unveiled yesterday, a big piece southern-style chicken sandwich that's named, of course, after... Ryan Howard, a peanut butter and jelly burger. Interesting. An impossible cheesesteak. I'm going to tell you, I do like to eat meat. I also love impossible burgers, so I'm going to put the impossible cheesesteak on my list. I'm going to have to bring my husband to check that out because he's vegetarian. We have been searching for vegetarian cheesesteaks, and none of them really taste like a cheesesteak. They're delicious, but very different, so I'm curious how this impossible one is. Plus, those of you who are also a fan of the brown liquor would also be interested to know that there is gluten-free rum that will be showing up at the games, which hopefully from the Phillies this season, you'll be having a lot more of that moderation because of their new lineup. I'm Jay Scott Smith. I'm Brian Seltzer. I'm Sabrina Boyd-Circa. And yes, none of us can wait for opening day this Friday. And we've got a link for Mike's photos and videos down in the show notes. And one of the things I really appreciate about being at KYW News Radio is working with people from different walks of life and just getting to know them. And Denise Nakano, who's one of my best friends in this building, she sits right next to me in the office. She has a powerful backstory that not a lot of people know about. And we're going to get to know more about her family's connection to Japanese internment camps back in the 1940s. We'll talk to her a little bit later on. But yesterday also marked 54 years since the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis, Tennessee. This April 4th, 1968. And when you think about what keeps the memory of Dr. King alive, so much of it has to do with what he said and what he did. But to underscore yesterday's anniversary, local civic leaders chose to march in silence. Now, Catherine Hicks is the president of the Philadelphia chapter of the NAACP, and she explained the march of silence was to show solidarity for justice in education. It has been written that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. knew that great education lays the foundation of a great society. That march took place in North Philadelphia. Fittingly, of course, it started at the Martin Luther King Jr. Recreation Center, went down to Frederick Douglass Mastery Charter School. Democratic State Senator Vincent Hughes says there's money to be spent to help the cause. We have an opportunity to solve this problem. It is in front of us right now. $2.8 billion in the state's rainy day fund. And we have a projected budget surplus to be over $7 billion. Something to keep an eye on. There's a lawsuit over the state's model for funding schools that's currently in the courts right now. Closing arguments were a couple weeks ago, and a verdict isn't expected until July, but that outcome could affect how money goes to schools. 
Now, you know how we were talking, guys, about some of the new ballpark food at Citizens Bank Park earlier, but I saw something on the website, kywnewsradio.com, that really caught my eye. Brian McDonough, our medical reporter, he was looking at the link between alcohol and cancer, and that's something that really grabbed my attention. According to a report from the National Cancer Institute, a majority of Americans do not know that alcohol consumption is a leading risk factor for cancer. This includes wine and beer. Cancer organizations are now petitioning support for a label to appear on alcohol products. They would like a similar warning as seen on cigarette packaging. In this case, the warning would say consumption of alcoholic beverages can cause cancer, including breast and colon cancer. What do you guys think about that? I mean, I know alcohol consumption can do certain amounts of damage to the body. Again, in moderation when you drink it, it's good for you. We've even seen studies talking about how certain amounts of wine can actually be helpful for your heart and things of that nature. But yeah, if it does that kind of damage to your liver, if you drink too much, I can only imagine what it's doing long term in other parts of the body. You know, something else, guys, that I've dealt with in my life is some ear, nose, and throat issues. And something I've become more aware of are the effects of indigestion and heartburn and acid reflux and those sorts of things. So if your diet has an effect on that, which alcohol certainly does, that puts you more at risk for something like colon cancer or mouth and throat cancer. So I can see why there would be benefits for sure to heightening people's awareness about the link between alcohol consumption and cancer. And I know Dr. McDonough, I also spoke with him a little little bit about this. He said the main message is if you just have the occasional drink or two, you have some wine with dinner, you have the occasional beer at a baseball game, you don't have a lot to worry about. This is for people who have really like really go hard with the alcohol, basically. So that's that's what he's been getting at more than anything else. Now, earlier this morning, Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky met with the UN. We, of course, continue to see just devastating images coming out of Ukraine. Dead bodies, mass graves, just stuff that you don't even want to talk about. The EU just proposed new sanctions as well, including banning coal imports from Russia. Locally, the support for Ukraine remains strong. Brett Mermelstein is from North Philadelphia, and maybe you've seen him standing out on the parkway waving a big Ukrainian flag. He's doing this one-person protest, hoping that it will raise money for humanitarian relief. I can't sit still seeing everything going on in the news. I just feel like I need to do something and take action. I think that's a feeling that a lot of us can identify with. You see these atrocities and you're just wondering what you can do. So Brett's out there doing his thing. He told Hadas Kuznis that he's Jewish and he has ancestors on his mom's side who fled Ukraine during the Holocaust. Obviously, there are lots of parallels we're seeing now between what's going on in Ukraine and what happened back then in the 1930s and 40s. So if you see Brett out there on 16th in the Parkway, give him a honk, show some support. You can donate money as well as some people did yesterday passing by. Really cool effort by Brett Mermelstein. And he recently returned from a humanitarian mission to Poland. He was over there helping Ukrainian refugees. So he has gone there, done his thing, and is bringing it back and rallying support here. Now coming up, whether it's bringing us eggnog and Christmas cookies or giving us pumpkin carving tips, or she and I having our fair share of inside jokes in the office, Denise Nakano is one of the great friends of the John cast. But she recently joined us to talk about something slightly different. The United States has its own unfortunate history of mistreating certain people. And her family was on the wrong end of it back in the 1940s. She talked to us about this family history, and she'll join us to talk about that coming up after this. I'm Jay. I'm Brian. I'm Sabrina. 
So we talked a lot about how important it is to remember history and especially to learn from people who were there while we still can. And one tough piece of American history is that some people have tried to forget about the treatment of Japanese Americans during World War II. This year marked the 80th anniversary of when President Roosevelt signed an executive order that started this mass incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. Now, Denise Nakano, who is one of KYW's midday anchors, we've had her on this show a bunch of times. She has some personal history tied to that time. And she was generous enough to talk with us and share her family's history, as well as some experiences that she's had that just really demonstrate that anti-Asian hate, sadly, is still alive and well. Denise, thank you so much, first of all, for coming in and being willing to talk about this this really personal story. So I started thinking about this when you did your story on our website about the Day of Remembrance, which was February 19th. So what exactly does that day commemorate? So that's the Day of Remembrance, and that's when uh, President Roosevelt, 80 years ago, signed this Executive Order 9066 that basically sent 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry, many of them Japanese Americans, away into incarceration camps. And they were there for three years. Basically, no warning. Okay, we signed this. You look like the enemy, so you are going to be put away for three years of your life um, during World War II. And among these, this list of, of folks were my own family members. So my father's side, my mother's side, we're talking second, third generation of Japanese Americans born here. Their parents were born here. And because they look like the enemy, they ended up being sent in these concentration camps. My father, only six months old. So he was a baby wow. and he was there for his, you know, first three years of life. Um, my, my grandparents, my uh, aunts and uncles... Um, they were in Manzanar, and then my mom's side was, she was sent to, to um, they were sent to Arkansas. My mom was not yet born, but my grandmother, my uncle, um, so many different relatives um, from the West Coast were put into these camps. So, you know, every year it's to commemorate the fact that this has happened. This is something that we don't really learn about in school very often. Mm -hmm. um, I It took me a while to even learn about it, and my family never really talked about it because I think there's a lot of shame involved or there's a lot of, let's move on, let's not talk about this, let's get on with our lives and prove our Americanness as opposed to kind of living back in the past. But it's something that we need to remember, right? Because it has so much impact to even what's going on today with anti-Asian sentiment. And the fact that this has been around for a very long time, even before Japanese Americans were incarcerated because of of looking like the enemy and just based on racial discrimination. You know, right. there was the Chinese Exclusion Act and, and so many other things. So we just don't want to ever perpetuate this. So we have to know the history so we don't repeat it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a little bit like jarring to think about the fact that that was happening here at the same time as Nazi concentration camps were happening. And we learn all about that and how bad that was. But acknowledging that America did kind of the same thing. Right. And basically, you know, of course, on our own soil, you know, to treat yeah. our own citizens in this way um, because of some perceived tie. And there was so much rhetoric surrounding, 
you know, anyone who was of Japanese ancestry, you know, you're evil, you look like this and, and all these other things. Um, and it just goes to show it kind of starts out with with rhetoric, with words, and then it can grow into to much worse. And, and hopefully yeah. we've learned. I mean, 40 years, you know, after that incident, you know, President Reagan had had you know given a restitution um, to Japanese Americans, which was some kind of, you know, a, a monetary compensation. But it was never enough for what people lost. I mean, mm-hmm. I've had family members who basically had to give up. You have to give up your homes. You have to give up any ties to businesses. You only had days to pack up what you could carry. And in for my grandmother was carrying in one arm my father, um, who was only months old. So, you know, just to lose everything in your dignity and to be put into kind of a dusty, dank, you know, place where this is your life now. You live in a one-room kind of bedroom with, you know, six, seven other relatives and being treated like prisoners because of what, what you did nothing wrong, yeah. You know, just because of your heritage, you're an American citizen, but because of your heritage. So, you know, and what was interesting about this and ironic was, you know, while so many Japanese Americans were in these camps, you know, you had a very distinct group, the 442nd uh, Regiment, that fought during World War II. They were made up of mostly Japanese Americans, and they fought uh, in Germany, in France, um, in Italy against you know, Nazi Germany. Um, and they, as they were doing this, they had their family members incarcerated. So yeah. here they are trying to prove their worth and their patriotism as their own family members were treated like dirt. And, you know, how frustrating and how sad that was. That's part of our, you know, American history. But I think it's something that we, we should always acknowledge and, and never forget. And oftentimes it's not something that's taught in, right. our, in our history books or in our classes. What else has your family told you? Have you heard kind of what they remember about what those camps were like? You know, it's something that a lot of Japanese Americans, including my own family, they didn't really openly talk about. Like I could never get my grandmother to speak about it. Um, And it was almost kind of like downplayed. Like, oh, you know, there was a part of it that's 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 uh, there's a shameful feeling of it, though. You feel like if I were to go back and say, hey, you shouldn't be feeling this way. You know, it wasn't your fault. Hmm. But I think a lot of them carried that with them. Like maybe if I didn't look this way or maybe if I if I was somebody else, then then this wouldn't have happened to us. But uh, the fact of the matter, it w- wasn't their fault. And and a lot of times you have people who don't like even my uncle, who was highly decorated in the most decorated military regiment in U.S. history, the 442nd. He couldn't really talk about it, It which I think so, uh, you know, I think it caused a lot of PTSD, post-traumatic stress. I think there's just people who wanted just to move on and then prove who they were as opposed to kind of living in that that past where they were treated like, you know, an enemy. Um, I know that my father, he was so young at the time that he didn't quite remember. All he remembers like incidents about he, him being into a, in a cafeteria and then his older sister, who was about 15, 16 years older, dropped him <laughs> in the cafeteria <laughs> and he landed on his head. And he, I think oh, he had gosh. a concussion, but there's like no resources right there. Yeah. Um, so they didn't believe him. Like my family didn't believe that he Ugh. was had a concussion. So they said, oh, you can find your way back. And he ended up finding his way back. But he was... <laughs> While he's concussed. Yeah, yeah, right. Or or just coming out of camp and, and the treatment then. My father describing how as a young child, a waitress ended up serving him spoiled milk and making him sick because he wow. was Japanese. So these these things I, I mean there there's just so much that that went into this so you you lose your 
your livelihood, anything that you had. And this is why every year it's remembered in this day of remembrance. And now I can't believe it's 80 years. And my dad's like 80 years old, yeah. still with us today. Yeah. I totally understand wanting to not think about a really, you know, terrible or tragic thing that, that happens to you. I can understand why they wouldn't want to talk about it. Um, I'm glad that they've talked about it enough that you know and are able to share this story. We've talked a lot about kind of how to keep these memories alive, at least to keep people remembering that they did happen, especially in however many years down the line when there will be might not be anybody left to say, I saw it, it happened. You have kids. Have you talked to them about this? Have you thought oh, about definitely. How do you sort of teach them about it in a way that they can can understand? I think very early on, and I have a blended family uh, between the ages of like nine and 14. Um, and I uh, read them. There's this book that my classmates ended up reading. I didn't read that's this in high school, but Farewell mm-hmm. to Manzanar, which is a good uh, backgrounder to, to what happened during that time. I've read them that book. We talk about it. We talk about different uh, events that happen. I, I try to take them out to cultural events. Um, and I've got to say, I mean, it's not just important for me to tell, like, this, share the story for my own kids so they don't forget and they can pass it on. But also, I think it's a lesson that other parents should share with their kids so their kids don't carry on any kind of bad legacy or any kind of discrimination or just to open their eyes. And there's also organizations like the Japanese American Citizens League, the JACL, that have been long civil rights activists, not only because of what Japanese Americans went through back in the day, but during 9-11, when Muslims were treated a certain way, you know, they stood up uh, because you just don't want to see that repeated to any other group whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what you've been through and and you know what, uh, what different groups have going through and you, you want to stop it at the pass. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's important. You know, I, I had this other incident that was more recent that was kind of related more toward the anti-Asian climate where, you know, a young kid looked at me uh, in the park when I was with an, my, my child, who happens to be half Japanese and half Filipino. Um, and he looked at me and he was only probably five years old. And he says, Chinese coronavirus. OK, so. You know, I'm it, so and it, sorry. You know, I mean, it, it takes it takes. I think parents to talk to their children to share these stories mm-hmm. to to let them know that hey, this is this is not right to basically discriminate, look at somebody and judge. Uh, you know, I ended up finding the father um, at the park, and we had a conversation. It was a good one, and I think hopefully that opened their eyes to you know this little boy got it somewhere. Right. And so he needs to be educated, mm-hmm. better educated about what it's like to be to have different faces and to have different people of different backgrounds. Yeah. That's scary to think of. You don't know. Maybe he didn't know where the, his kid got it from. It's on, you know, politicians are saying that on the news. And right. it could just happen to be on the background or in a newspaper or something. So. Yeah, it is really important that we're having these conversations with kids. It's scary to know just how quickly and how early they pick things up at five years old, you said? Yeah, he was about five years old with a couple little cousins of his that were even younger and running around and just looking and saying, oh, this person looks uh, 
of Asian descent. So uh, that person has COVID or whatever. <laughs> it was just pretty incredible. Wow. I was like, really? This just happened? I yeah, can't believe just, it. Yeah, just wow. Um, but, but yeah, it's important. I mean, I even talked to friends, I, you know, my own husband who grew up in South Philly and then South Jersey, I never even heard about it until I told him about the Japanese-American experience. So there, I think it's just something that we just have to keep putting out there. And, and luckily, there are groups and civil rights groups that, that do pass on that information. Um, but yeah, I mean, having it happen to my own family, I mean, there is a certain generational impact as well. I mean, my grandfather had a connection to a, a tofu company, but mm. had to lose that. And mm. so, you know, I think then my my family grew up in a bit of poverty, and I ended up being the first one out of what fourth generation of of uh, being American was the first one out of my family to to go to college. So who knows? I mean, had my family still had that kind of built on that generational wealth that wasn't stolen from them, you know, it could have mm. been different today. Who knows? You know. I, you never know, but um, but you have to wonder. You know the impacts or the impacts of the PTSD that that come on through generation to generation. You know, you mentioned a couple of resources. Are there any other places that people can go to get themselves more educated, or other ways that we can get this message out there and make sure that we don't repeat history? You know, I think. Um, the Japanese American Citizen League of uh, Philadelphia, they had uh, put out, you know, it, I have to get you the actual website, but um, it's about how uh, there's a lot of Japanese Americans that ended up resettling in the Jersey area and also in the Philadelphia area and what that looked like. Um, a lot of times the Japanese Americans ended up settling on the West Coast and some ended up coming over to the East Coast. Um, but what that looked like, especially in the in the Philly area, and that was something that was marked during this day of remembrance, um, February nineteenth. So. Wow! Yeah, we will absolutely put that that website in our show description so you can read more. Thank you again, Denise, for coming on, sharing your story, and educating us on some of this stuff. Anytime, I'm always here. To hear that story, and it's again, it's one of those those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it deals. And we're kind of seeing that now. And Denise told us something really powerful there by being able to share that with us and share her family's history. I think this whole conversation just just showed me if you needed to hear it, now you've heard it, that this kind of stuff is happening and did happen many years ago, 80 years ago, and it's still happening today. We certainly appreciate Denise coming on here and sharing her story. And as mentioned, you can check out the description down below as well as Twitter, at the JohnCast, for links about Denise's story and links just, honestly, to help educate yourself more about this really black mark in U.S. history and the ripple effect that still follows today that the next generation and the generation after that still carries around. Thank you again, Denise Nicano, for joining us for that one. I'm Jay Scott Smith. I'm Brian Seltzer. I'm Sabrina Boyd-Circa. And that's it for this Tuesday. Thank you for checking us out today. We'll be back at you to help you get over the hump on Wednesday.